Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Worship at Fusion this morning. We're so glad that you're connecting with us in person, as well as to those of you online. Welcome. And now hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 18. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us. From heights of heaven to darkest night, the mission of the Father's heart upon your mind. Nothing would stop you I know you'll make a way Not 
songs of praise to shake prison walls. I will speak to my fear. I will preach to my doubt. You were faithful then. You'll be faithful now. You were faithful then. You'll be faithful now. You were faithful then. You'll be faithful now. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Glad we can gather on this um, this spring day and um, and worship the Lord um, together. A couple of announcements um, before we pray. Um, first off, we um, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, so we um, begin Holy Week, and so we're looking forward to you being here. Um, so this coming Sunday, a week from today, is Palm Sunday. A week from Thursday is Maundy Thursday service in the evening here. Um, where we gather together and um, celebrate communion together and the institution of the Lord's Supper in preparation for Easter Sunday. encourage you to, um, to join us for all three of those services, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and Easter Sunday. Those are also great services to invite friends, to invite people you may know who don't regularly attend church to come and experience the Hardwick community and particularly the Fusion community. Um, so right now, um, if, the, if ch we have children's ministry through third grade, um, your children are welcome to stay in the service, but if they would like to participate in children's ministry, um, they can head over to my right, to your left, and Pastor Mary is over there eagerly awaiting you. They're not moving very fast this morning. Let's... Um, let us say our blessing um, over um, the young people this morning, and we'll begin with the adults. Um, the Lord be with you. Okay, we're getting there. I, the, we're ramping up the energy each week on the first time, but I think we're going to try that again and try to be a little bit more energetic. Um, the Lord be with you. All right, very well done, very well done. Blessings to you. We'll begin our time of prayer this morning with a reading from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. Gracious Father, we come before you as your children as people who are found in you, as people who are called your sons and daughters in the scriptures, as we refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are united together as a family. And as a family, we look to you for we are dependent on you. And you, we find our meaning, we find our purpose we find the understanding of the core of who we are in Christ. And gracious Father, like all children, at times, we're rebellious. And yet as a loving Father, you welcome us into your arms. You welcome us in a way that we do not have to fear rejection. But you welcome us when we come and we confess and you wrap your arms around us and you love us because you know that ultimately it is a love that is available through Christ that transforms us into the image of your firstborn son. And so, Lord, we come as your people. And we thank you that you have called us into that relationship with you and that we can live into that relationship. And that as we study the scriptures, as we worship together, as we pray together, that you are using those things to form us into the image of your Son. Even as we gather this morning, we know that in the community that we have here, that there are those who've experienced loss, the passing of loved ones this past week. We know that there are those who are struggling with physical illness. We know that there are those who struggle with mental challenges and illness. We know that for some Life has just become heavy and burdensome, and they're tired. 
Gracious Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit comes alongside and carries us through those times, that the Holy Spirit comes and prays for us in ways that we don't even know, that the Holy Spirit prays for us even when we don't know what to pray. But we're also thankful that we can share those burdens together, that we can pray, that we can walk alongside, that we can weep, that we can listen, and that we can laugh together as we face life as a community. For Lord, you have called us into life, into life in this community. And yet, Lord, as we look at the world around us, sometimes it's very difficult to know what to pray. And perhaps our prayer should be, Lord, grant us humility. Grant our world leaders humility. Grant those who are in conflict humility. Grant them a humility that allows them to listen, that allows them to pause, that allows them to consider both, well, the short-term and the long-term implications of decisions. But Lord, grant them a humility that values truth, that values love, that values beauty, and that values honesty in their relationships with each other. Because it's those things which will endure. And they will endure because they are rooted in you. And lastly, Lord, this morning we pray for our brothers and sisters just north in Ravinia at First Reformed Church. First Reformed Church, Lord, experienced a devastating fire this past yesterday. And we pray that you would be with them as they meet for worship this morning in a different facility. That you be with them as they sort out what happened. And that you be with them as they navigate the roads ahead. And so, Lord, now as we continue to worship together through the hearing and the preaching of your word, may your spirit prepare our hearts and our minds for the words that Pastor JB is going to bring. And may they speak life, transforming life into, into each of our lives and into each of our relationships so that we leave being having experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives together. Bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Darwin. And good morning, Fusion family. Good morning, good morning. It is uh, always good to be together. Uh, it's good to come together and be formed by this practice of community worship. And uh, it is the first Sunday of April. It's spring break. Who needs spring, right? That sounded boring. We wanted, we wanted snow, and I'm sure all of our friends who are enjoying Florida or the Gulf Coast or whatever, I'm sure they're jealous of our weather, you know? I, okay, I, I heard a really funny story this where one of our worship team members uh, woke up Friday morning. Do you remember Friday morning? There was like an inch of snow on the ground, and uh, their son comes in and says, Mom, did I sleep through summer? I thought that was absolutely precious. So, hey, uh, Darwin mentioned uh, the Holy Week services. We got a little slide there just to, to, to take a visual mental snapshot, Holy Week. Uh, again, I would just reiterate that to invite you to make that part of your um, Easter remembrance, uh, that Maundy Thursday, remembering that Christ died on the cross is so important to fully appreciate Resurrection Sunday. So just an encouragement there. Uh, but otherwise, we are continuing in our series uh, in Lent where we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of Exodus. And always during these series, our eyes are, are fixed on Jesus Christ as we journey toward the cross. Our hope this morning is really to kind of wrap up the book of Exodus. Uh, as we move into Palm Sunday, we're going to continue to draw back on the people's experience in the wilderness, but really uh, today we kind of wrap up the book of Exodus as we move into Holy Week. Just a quick little reminder, you got that little visual up on the screen. We began in Exodus 3 where, where God reveals his name to Moses, I am, or he is Yahweh, right? Yahweh, I am. Uh, this week we're going to be focusing on two verses really in Exodus 34 verses 6 through 7. Uh, I believe this originates with, with Dr. John Sailhammer, Sel, um, but I heard it a couple people beyond him, but he has said that Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is the most quoted passage in the Bible 
by the Bible. So this is the most referenced passage in all of scripture in scripture. And there's a cool little graphic there that Bible Project put out. Um, and all of those lines that represents the books of the Old Testament, and all those purple lines are where uh, these two verses are referenced, typically not in whole, uh, but in pieces throughout the uh, Hebrew Bible, which is a really cool visual. And so if, if the Bible passage is the most quoted passage, it's significant, right? This is, this is a, the, the time when God gives a self-description of his own character. This is the first time that God describes his own character uh, in the scriptures, and he does so to Moses. Now, the interesting thing is that this happens in a block of, of stories or narrative uh, during a really contentious part of the Exodus narrative. If you remember, where did we end last week? Exodus 32 with a golden calf, right? And so this takes place shortly after, kind of within that narrative stream is when God reveals his name after the people of God have completely uh, abandoned the covenant, right? They have broken the covenant in, in audacious fashion. Uh, they're at Mount Sinai, right? They've been rescued from Egypt. They're at Mount Sinai. They've established this covenant. In chapter 32, Moses is up on the mountain of the Lord receiving instruction for the tabernacle and he finds out that the people have built an idol and are worshiping another god. Uh, it, it, it's stark, but then what, what, what happens, uh, going a little more deeper into, just kind of give you a summary of chapter 32. Uh, while Moses is up there, the Lord tells him what's going on. He, he intercedes, and, and God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna destroy these people, and I'm gonna start over with you, Moses. Moses says, don't do that, right? He intercedes. Uh, God relents in, in, in verse 12 and 14, does not bring about disaster, uh, but then Moses goes down the mountain and sees what's happening. And what does he do? He takes that statue, that golden statue, he grinds it up into dust and makes the people drink it. Okay, wow. Uh, but then even after all that, uh, the people are still running around wild. And so then Moses gathers the Levites, the firstborn sons, and he has the Levites kill 3,000 people in one day, verse 28. What? Then the Lord, at the end of the chapter, strikes the people with a plague. So there's a lot going on, and, and it's hard to make sense of. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna touch on that tension. Chapter 33 opens. The Lord says, I'm going to keep my covenant with Abraham, bring these people to the promised land, but I'm going to send an angel to go, and I'm not going to go with them. Moses says, whoa, 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 whoa. If you are not going to go with us, don't even, send, don't even send us. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to go with you. Uh, and then we have this amazing request of Moses who says, now show me your glory. And God says, okay, um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna hide you in a, in a cleft of a rock because you can't handle seeing my glory, right? I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll let you see the back of my head because you can't see my face and then I'll appear to you on the mountain as you are hidden and tucked away in this cleft of a rock. We get to chapter 34 and this moment takes place. And that's what we're going to read this morning. Uh, and this is where God reveals his name and his character. Uh, Exodus 34, we're going to be reading verses 5 through 9, if you're willing. And if you're able, I invite you to stand as we honor uh, the one whose glory we can't face. Exodus 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, and proclaimed his name, the Lord, or Yahweh, from chapter 3. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. 
And we thank you that you are, you are God. Lord, that your, your glory is, is beyond what we can imagine, what we can, what we can stand. And yet, Lord, you reveal yourself to us through your word. And so, Lord, as we study these words and these verses from your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would indeed challenge us and encourage us and shape us more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. It may be that you just had this experience, but let me know if, if you've ever had this experience where you're reading the Bible and you come across a part of the Bible and you begin thinking, what in the world is going on? Right? Maybe, 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 it's a, maybe you're going, reading the Bible in a year and maybe you find yourself in the middle of the book of Leviticus and you're reading some of the laws of, of, of the Lord and you're like, what? What, what are these laws? Or maybe you're reading the Psalms and, and, and some of the prayers that the psalmists are, are uttering before the Lord, you're like, what are, they, what are they praying about? Or maybe it's part of the narrative, like we just kind of summarized and read, and you're reading this narrative and you're thinking, what in the world is going on in this moment? And if you read Exodus chapter 32 and kind of read all the details of the things we just kind of covered, you might be thinking the same thing. What, it, what is Moses doing grinding up this statue and, and making the people eat gold dust? What is with the killing of 3,000 people? And, and if you've ever had that experience, and, and I have, welcome to the world of biblical head scratchers. Now, is that an official theological term? I don't think so. Um, but biblical head scratchers. And it's not just biblical head scratchers. Maybe you've been in conversations and, and you've experienced and come across theological head scratchers where it kind of just leaves you scratching your head wondering, what, what do, how do I make sense of this? Um, I've had these conversations many times and recently have gotten to some of those questions again. Uh, one of the biggest questions that people wrestle with, and, and it is the biggest stumbling block for faith, is the problem of evil and suffering in the world. And how do we make sense of, of the evil and the suffering that we witness and see and hear about in this world, particularly in light of the fact that we believe in a God who is all-powerful and good? And the question around this is, why, why doesn't God do something about the evil and the suffering that we see in our world? Is God indifferent? Like, is it that God just doesn't care? Or is God just not as powerful as we think? He's unable to do something, right? These are just tough questions with tensions that, that are hard for us to grasp. And, and to be honest, I've had these conversations. I still wrestle with these questions. How do we make sense of some of these stories that we read, particularly in the Old Testament, but it's not just the Old Testament. There's some in the New Testament as well. How do we make sense of some of these narratives? How do we make sense of evil and suffering in this world? These are, these are disorienting questions. And they're particularly disorienting, I think, for us post-enlightenment, where we value reason and logic because we want things to fall into place. We want things to make sense, right? But if, if, if any of us have lived any amount of years in this broken and sinful world, what doesn't make sense? Life. Life so often does not make sense. And here's my suspicion. I suspect that ancient audiences were much more comfortable with some of the tensions that us modern audiences identify in the scriptures. I just think they were more comfortable with it. That's my suspicion. And, and, and the reason I think so is I wanna suggest that the scriptures don't shy away from these tensions. Our passage is a wonderful example. There's no sugarcoating. There's no glossing over the tensions of these things. In fact, the scriptures uh, acknowledge them. Not to give answers necessarily, but they at least acknowledge these tensions. This morning what I want to do is explore Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7. Again, the most quoted passage of scripture by the scriptures. 
And see where this is where God describes his own character to Moses. Now to understand um, God's character is so important, right? We need to understand who God is, so understand God's character. And here God describes his own character. It's so important for us to understand God's character if we're going to choose to give our lives in trust and faith to God. Because if I have a, a, a warped view of God's character, and I believe God is this kind of twi- like twisted sociopath, like why would I put my trust in him, right? But if God is who God describes himself to be, that's someone worth putting our trust and our faith in. So these are important questions to understand God's character. And where we're gonna kind of step into this is, is a th- something really thrilling. And I'm guessing most of you woke up this morning and said, I hope the, pe- the sermon is about this. We're gonna talk about literary structure. You can chuckle a little bit, yeah. Literary structure, the literary structure in Exodus 34, verses six through seven. Now, last week and this week, and if you got the email, I mentioned this, but leaning heavily into Bible Project, and I wanna echo something that, uh, I think it was Bill that said, thank you, Bible Project, for making me sound way smarter than I actually am, okay? Uh, Because they just do an excellent job, particularly in this, they do a six six video series on these two verses. They have just incredible resources that I I can't push you toward those things enough if you want to go further in depth. But let's talk about literary structure. Now again, I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a scholar in literature by any means, but for modern readers uh, perspective, uh, these two verses are just strange in how they're ordered and structured. Right, you're, you're, we're reading this description in verse six of God's character and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And, and you're reading that maybe like me, you're like, yes, that's incredible. Man, I love that description. And then all of a sudden we get halfway through verse seven and you're like, what? Like what in the world? Are, are we talking about punishing the children's children to the third and fourth generation? Like, like what is that? Again, head scratcher, right? And here's the reason why it's, it's really confusing for us because in modern language, what do we do? We, we begin or end a paragraph with the most important point. So if you're, if you're, if you're skimming through a, a, a book, you read the first sentence, you read the sec- last sentence, you're like, okay, I think I got the main point because all that other stuff's filler, right? Or, or here's, another, here's another example in, in kind of modern culture. Uh, someone says to you, I got good news and I got bad news. What do you want to hear first? Right? How many of you want to hear the, the, the bad news first? Yeah. How many of you want to hear the good news first? Some want to hear the bad. The, now, actually, they've done studies on this, and actually studies suggest that when asked this question, most people want to hear the bad news first and then the good news because the idea is, you know, that the good news is going to kind of take the edge off. You want to end with something good, uh, Right? Um, so that's kind of the modern strategy. But in the ancient world, the, the strategy is a little different. Now, this is not always the case, but one of the literary structures in ancient literature, and you see this kind of structure in poetry some today, uh, but it's something called a chiasm. And so this is a chiastic structure, and you'll notice there's kind of the first and last line kind of mirror each other, and then as you move toward the center, the second and fourth line there mirror each other. The idea is it wants to draw your attention to that C, that center line in the illustration line C. And, you know, scholars uh, have put Exodus 34 into two chiasms. So there are two chiasms happening in verse 6 and verse 7. We're going to look at those to kind of gather some meaning. Okay, do we understand a little literary structure? Just nod, pretend. Yeah, okay, we, we do. Okay, so let's begin by looking at verse six. This is, verse six is really the description of God's character. God is coming to Moses. He's hitting him in a cleft in the rock. He's saying, this is who I am. This is God's self-description of his own character. And there is this chiastic structure. It opens with the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, and then comes the first chiasm, Okay. And it's broken down into this. How, how we see this is line A and then line kind of A prime or whatever are three Hebrew words at the beginning, three Hebrew words at the end, bringing us to the middle. Now we'll talk about that. Uh, but before we kind of really dig into that chiastic structure, what I want to do is dig into this, 
this character of God, this self-description of who God is. And, and as we're gonna just quickly cover like, what is it, five or six words, uh, note, please note that books have been written on these two verses. Uh, I was part of a sermon series. We spent six weeks on these two verses. Uh, Bible Project, again, does six videos on this one verse. And so what we're gonna do today is just kind of a, a real quick Cliff Notes version. Uh, but again, we're gonna lean into Bible Project because what they have put together is incredibly helpful. So let's begin by looking at that first line, uh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Three Hebrew words, El-Rahum Hanun, I'll ask you to repeat those in a little bit. So get, your, get ready to, to say some Hebrew. Compassionate and gracious God. Two related words in this first set. Compassionate and gracious. And so right here we have first, let's start with compassionate. Now the f- most fascinating thing about the word compassionate, rahum, can you say that with me? Rahum, you gotta kind of get that, you know, that rahum. A rahum, the most fascinating thing, is related to the Hebrew word rechem. You see, can you see, can you hear how they're related? That those three uh, Hebrew consonants, rahum and rechem, they share. And that word rechem is the Hebrew word for womb. Now isn't that fascinating? And so when you hear the word compassionate, what it brings to mind is the tender love and concern of a mother for her infant child. Uh, compassionate is an emotive word. Uh, it points to a God who is, who is deeply moved from within God's core, deeply moved by, you remember Exodus 3, by the suffering of God's people. He, is, he hears and he sees, right? He's deeply moved to his core. And this, this, this compassion compels God to move toward his people. Let's move to gracious. Uh, the word for gracious in the Hebrew is chanum. Say that with me. Chanum. Yeah. Those are just pleasant sounds, right? Chanum. It's related to the word hen, uh, which is the word for favor or grace. Here, here it's helpful to think of, of a, a king or someone coming to a king and saying, oh, oh king, show me favor. Show me grace. So a king showing grace or favor to a subject. The highest form of grace offered is to someone who doesn't deserve it. God, therefore, is the ultimate giver of hen, grace. Therefore, he is gracious, hanun. In some ways, graciousness, if you think about it, is the embodiment of compassion. If I'm moved to my core by compassion, that leads me often to act by offering grace or favor. That's how these words are connected and therefore used often together. God of compassion and grace. El, which is God, Rahum Hanun. God is deeply moved to offer grace and favor. Compassion and gracious. All right, let's move to the next one. Compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Now, this is a fun one, so humor me just for a moment. What I want you to do is is make an angry face right now, like real dramatic. Make an angry face at me. You can, yeah. Make an angry face. And now turn to your, the person, your neighbor and look at them with that angry face. Don't, you know, don't feel bad. No one start crying. Um, but just notice the angry face. And when you make an angry face, notice the nose. What is the nose doing? The angry face, it's kind of, it's flared, right? We say like your nostrils, okay, you can stop making the face or you can keep, that's fine. But your, your, your nostrils kind of flared, right? When you make that angry face and that's we talk, talk about like nostrils flaring or, or, your, or if you make that face intense enough or for long enough or there's real emotion behind it, your face becomes red and warm, it becomes hot, okay? So what's interesting is uh, this, this phrase in the Hebrew, er, Eric Af is the, is the root word, but Eric Apaim, I believe, is, is how it's translated here in Exodus 34. Eric Apaim literally means long of nose. Now that's interesting, right? But what's, what's going on there? Why, why would you say long of nose? The idea is that if you had a long nose, no comments, I have a long nose, I get it, okay. Uh, if you have a long nose, it takes longer for your nose to burn hot, a long nose. So if you think about it, if you have a long nose, it takes longer for you to get angry, slow to anger, 
It's actually a really good, helpful English translation. That's kind of a fun one, right? Long of nose. So next time your spouse or someone gets angry at you, like, hey, get a longer nose, or I don't know, anyway. Or don't do that, because that would probably make it worse. All right, slow to anger. The next one, let's look at abounding in love. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding is the first of the three words. The next two are chesed and emet. Let's first talk about chesed. Uh, Say that with me, chesed. Chesed, yep. A lot of chesed, yeah. Chesed is a really is a is a is a word that's found throughout the scriptures, but it's a really difficult word to translate into the English. Because it's more than just love. To just say love is 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 incomplete. Because the word chesed combines the ideas of love, but also ideas of generosity and commitment. And so often in the scriptures it's translated steadfast love. Right, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. This captures God's commitment to covenant promises. This is who God is. And so in the Psalms, there's this, this constant refrain, uh, his love, his chesed endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Chesed, chesed that is overflowing. And another word is related, faithfulness, emet. Say that with me. Emmet, that one's easy, right? That one sounds real natural for us. Emmet can be translated faithfulness, uh, but it can also be translated truth. It's related to the Hebrew expression amen. Emmet, amen. Can you hear the similarity there? And when we say amen, what we're actually saying is, I agree, or verily, or truly, or that's truth, right? So when, when I, you know, the pastor, we're like, okay, are you hearing me? Can I get an Amen. Amen. What you're saying is, that's truth. So when, when we use amen, we're actually using it in a very uh, real and, uh, and accurate way. It relates, uh, the word emmet relates to truth or faithfulness, but it relates to stability. It relates to reliability or trustworthiness, right? That God is trustworthy. That God is one that we can count on. God is faithful. In other words, God is not erratic, Right? God is not some kind of loose cannon that's going to fire off in anger. No, God is faithful. He's consistent. He is trustworthy. And the ways in which God is trustworthy and consistent is he's consistent according to his character. So even in these passages which are kind of like, God, like Moses intercedes and God relents and it's like, well, what is, he's consistent to his character, And so even there, God is relenting, he's consistent, he's moving toward his character and he's just described who he is. He's just described his character to us in Exodus 34, verse six. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is who God is. Isn't that awesome? Can I get an amen? Emmet, yeah, there we go. Now, we read verse 6, and sometimes we're tempted just, let's just cut it off at verse 6, because that's beautiful, that makes us feel good, but we have to look at verse 7 as well. And actually, verse 7, it it starts out pretty good, right? We're like, oh, yeah, for maintaining love to thousands, that's good. And then all of a sudden, it, it takes this turn where we start scratching our head, like, what is going on? Now, a little important note, verse 6 is really the character of God, This is where God is describing character traits and attributes. If you look at verse seven is is really how that character of God plays out in the world. How God's character plays out in a world that's broken and filled with sin and broken people. And so uh, character of God, verse seven, I've put character in practice. So this is the character of God in practice. And here we don't have time to dig too deeply into the meaning and impact of that last part like like generational sin, like what, what, is, what does that mean? You know, it, does God hold a grudge? And so if my dad makes a mistake, am I gonna fail my algebra test? Let me just, that's not what this is saying, okay? It has more to do with like this, our sin and things that we do have a generational impact. I think that's gonna make more sense. But again, we don't have time to get into all that. Instead, what I wanna really zero in on is that chiastic structure of verse seven. Notice the structure. I used a little color. Hopefully you can see that. Uh, But notice that the the first line and the last line are related. They mirror each other. Maintaining love to thousands. uh, Let's assume there's thousands of generations. 
maintaining love to thousands, ending with third and fourth generation. Do you see how they're related? You see that structure? Also notice thousands of gener- maintaining love to thousands. Thousand, math, it's way more than three or four. That's important, that's important, right? Maintaining love to thousands. Uh, third and fourth, you go to line two and four, you have this kind of contrast between forgiveness and punishment, but notice how those things are related, and then it all draws our attention to that third line, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And this is the literary key for identifying the tension in this text, the text is highlighting And here's a a graphic from Bible Project that shows how those are related. The literary key is that the Lord's character is described in verse six as compassionate and gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness. And what does that mean? That all means that God is slow to anger and yet that relates to uh, that third line and yet he won't declare the innocent the guilty or he won't leave the guilty unpunished. That's the tension in the text. God is all of these things. He's slow to anger, and yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. There is a tension in the text, but I think what we understand is the tension in the text is also the tension we experience in our our world as well. And this is one of the reasons why I love the scriptures. Because there's no sugarcoating the human experience Right, right. There's, there's no like sweeping under the rug the things that are difficult or make everything end happy. And right, the, the, the Bible, the this ancient book, is incredibly relevant and relatable to our own experience because it doesn't sugarcoat things. It's far more relatable, actually, than I think most movies that I like to watch, where they always resolve and end with a happy ending. Right? That's not life. The Bible is more relatable and relevant than most things that I consume today. The Bible is filled with tension. And I argue, I'd argue that that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. It's filled with tension because it's the same tension we experience in this world. It's the same tension that, that leads us to wrestle with the questions and problems of suffering in this world. It's the same tension that we feel deep within our soul when we read about or we see images about an invasion in the Ukraine. It's the same tension that, we, that, that turns our gut when we read statistics about human trafficking in our world and that human slavery is not a thing of the past but something that's still happening today in a variety of settings. It's the same tension that we experience when in our own personal experience we experience a loss that feels senseless and unfair and there is absolutely no explanation for it. Because life is filled with tension. And life is filled with confusion and and how do I make sense of this? And so the fact that that tension is in the scriptures that we call God's word, I find that to be, in a strange way, comforting. The Bible acknowledges and embraces this shared human experience along with this recognition that there is this mysterious work of God in the midst of it. What Exodus 34 verses six through seven, the tension that's being acknowledged is basically saying this, that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who God is and yet sometimes Sometimes God's character compels God. It's God's love that compels God toward action and intervening and and, and acting in justice. And sometimes it's God's character that compels God to to wait and to continue long-suffering. But all of this is is, is a mystery. How this works out, the details of how this works out is a mystery to us as human creatures who are limited in our comprehension and scope. Now does this answer our questions? Or does this explain every scenario of human suffering? Absolutely not. It does not answer those questions. Is this a satisfying explanation to someone who is in the midst of bewildering grief or loss? No. In fact, say, don't say anything. Just be with that person. But this tension, 
simply helps us begin to wrestle with the presence of suffering in this world and the stories of God's judgment and yet this other piece that God, this is who God is, compassionate and gracious. It allows us to hold both of those truths up together. To say that human suffering does not nullify or cancel out this idea and theology and belief in a God who is loving and good and powerful. And I think most of us probably understand this at least on a certain level, how both those things can be true. I think the most helpful kind of illustration parallel for us is, is, is when, when we are caring for a child. Parents, guardians, caretakers, you, you understand this on a certain level. When you love a child, that child garners emotional responses, right? Including anger. I've said this multiple times. I thought I was a pretty patient person and I had kids, right? And, 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 and with, with your child, you can offer forgiveness and, and, and you can offer grace and second chances for misbehavior. But after a while, what do you need to do? You need to offer discipline. Because if we don't discipline our kids, what happens? Right? Our kids need to feel the weight of, their, of the consequences of their actions because if they don't experience the weight of consequences to their actions, if they don't experience discipline, then they're going to grow up thinking that they can do whatever they want and get away with it. And where does that path lead? Destruction. Death, right? that's, not, that's not a path that leads toward life. Discipline comes from a place of love. Right? And on the other side, when, when you're a parent and you see your child and, and maybe you're seeing their chi- your child and something's happened to them that's unjust, maybe it's a bully, maybe it's something, heaven forbid, worse, what happens within you? Because you love your child, you feel anger because that is not right. And, it, and that love which brings anger compels you to act and to exercise justice, hopefully with a clear head, Right? It comes from love, not in spite of love, right? God's character is described in verse six, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that character gets played out in this world that God is inclined to maintain love and forgiveness to thousands of generations, but sometimes, sometimes God has to step in and offer correction. And again, it's because of his love, not in spite of it, Again, this doesn't answer all the questions. And I understand that, and I still have my own struggles and questions, and I wrestle with these things. And by the way, if you're in a place where you need to re- go to God, bring it to God. He invites it in his Psalms. He can handle it. How and why all this works out, it's a, it's a human, it's a, it's a mystery in our limits as humanity. But what I, what I want to just assure you this morning is I want to assure you that belief in a loving and all-powerful God is not incompatible with the experience of suffering and brokenness in this world. And what I would say from testimonies of people I've walked with, actually it is this tension of God's goodness and power despite the suffering, has been, that, that belief and that theology has been an anchor for so many people in the midst of suffering and hardship. this tension between God's character and suffering. And throughout this series, what have we been doing? We've been keeping our eyes on Jesus, right? Keeping our eyes on Jesus. Here's the beautiful thing. That this tension that we've identified, this tension in the text, this tension in our own experience of a good and loving God and yet this brokenness of this world and uh, it comes beautifully together in the person and life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, this tension is reconciled. God is filled with love for the human race. But there's this sin and there's this rebellion that's corrupted and polluted the world. In a couple of weeks, we've mentioned Holy Week, we're gonna remember that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was compelled by love, steadfast love. 
And because of that love, Jesus Christ took upon himself the weight of sin and death and human suffering. And he was nailed to the cross. And he bore the weight of the punishment that our sin deserved. And he died. And then three days later, the Son of God rose again, conquering sin and death. And in that act, love compelled God to take on God's self in Jesus Christ the sin and the brokenness of this world. This is the gospel. Gospel compelled by love. God did for us what the law and what we could never do for ourselves. This is the good news that we're gonna remember in a couple weeks. The gospel. And here the, the author of the gospel of John, John explains how the character of God is embodied in Jesus Christ. John 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verses 14, 16, and 18. And I just wanna, there's all these echoes of the book in the book of Exodus right here. John writes, the word became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. The word there is tabernacled. No longer God dwelling in a, in a tent in the desert, but he made his dwelling among us. You have seen his glory, right Moses? Show me your glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, or chesed and emmet came through Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus Christ, the Lord no longer dwells in a tent in the wilderness. The Lord has made his dwelling among us here on earth in his son, Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the son of God, Jesus Christ, now dwells in the hearts of God's people. Jesus Christ, the embodiment of God's character, dwells in the hearts of God's children. And our prayer is that by the power of the Holy Spirit as God's work is at work and in play in our hearts that it would begin to overflow into our lives. And what do we call that? We call that fruit. <laughs> the fruit of the Spirit, do you see some echoes from the character of God in verse six? Our prayer is that we would live according to the fruit of the Spirit, that the power of God that is at work in us would overflow in our lives and impact the lives of others around us. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, and patience or long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control and gentleness. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Fusion family, that is our prayer. That the God who is embodied in Jesus Christ, Jesus who lives in us by the power of the Spirit would begin to overflow into our lives so that we as God's ambassadors, the church of Jesus Christ, the royal priesthood as we talked about last week, would begin to give people just a glimpse of the goodness and the love and the faithfulness of God, not in our power, but the power of the Spirit at work in and through us. May we bear fruit. And let's pray and ask the Spirit's help in this. Will you join me? Lord God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your compassion, your grace. We thank you that you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, that in the work of Jesus Christ, Lord, we have this gift of salvation. Salvation not only for eternity, but Lord, salvation today that reminds us that we are united with Jesus Christ, that Christ, you live in us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that work so that we might live a life of spirit-given fruitfulness. And in that, Lord, people would experience just a glimpse of your character and your love. Do this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us.
uh, I was just compelled this week by, by Moses' word. You know, when God said, I'm going to send an angel, and, and Moses says, if you're not going with us, like, don't even bother sending us. And the question that, resi- you know, resounded in my heart was, do I have that same desire and longing and desperation for God's presence to be known, made known in my life and through my life? I guess I pose that question. Do we... I pray that the Spirit would continue to grow that in our lives. And, and then, of course, he says, show me your glory. Uh, later on in the book of Numbers, um, Aaron is given, given this blessing, and so I offer it to us this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Christ your name. 